0: My name is John Bell. I'm a band director at Germantown High School in Germantown, Wisconsin. John Bell has been making this show a big part of his work. He says he wanted something more for his students.
1: Something to help bring the kids together more than making music. I'm listening to the podcast each week and thought, this best part of your week is a great idea. So I I borrowed it.
0: John started playing our Best Things segment for his band classes, and he'd ask his students to share the best parts of their weeks as well.
1: College acceptance letters, getting driver's license, good test scores, siblings coming home from college to visit. They get to know each other better than just coming to class each day and performing concerts together. It's a a more personal connection that they didn't have before.
0: Public radio is more than just the news. It helps you celebrate the good stuff in life, too. And like John Bell said, it helps build stronger communities in high school band halls and across the world. Support this work. To get started with your donation to an NPR member station, visit donate.npr.org slash Sam, or just text the word Sam to the number 49648. We'll send you a text message with a link where you can find your local station and make your contribution. Message and data rates may apply, You can visit NPR.org slash SMS terms for privacy and text message terms. This lifelong band nerd thanks you.
1: Hello, this is Chris.
0: Hey, Chris. This is Sam Sanders calling with NPR. Hello. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. Uh, It's a little snowy here today, but other than that, I'm okay.
0: Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. I called up Chris Seely a few weeks ago to talk about Thanksgiving. I know, I know, Thanksgiving 2019 has officially passed us by, but it's my favorite holiday, and it's still the holiday weekend, so indulge me. We're going to give you, this episode, a very different kind of Thanksgiving hour. Think of it as an anti-Thanksgiving episode. We'll give you a Thanksgiving horror story, one man's struggle against the Thanksgiving food industrial complex and a conversation with a chef that has no mention of turkey at all. We reached listener Chris Seely via Skype. He lives in Rapid City, South Dakota, and we wanted to call Chris because he has a very strange Thanksgiving story, a crisis that left a lot of folks in his family hungry when they should have been eating turkey.
1: We need to eat because people are getting really cranky and hungry, and we need to go home at some point, and this day is getting very long.
0: Let's start at the beginning.
1: Well, let me back up a little bit Okay. the story and and tell you my father was um, medically retired, Mm -hmm. and so he got to stay home all day long, and he said that he saw this recipe on TV. He said it was Martha Stewart, how to make this really excellent, moist Thanksgiving turkey. Okay. And for some reason, my mom said, yeah, we're going to let you do it this year. Had your dad I- ever
0: cooked a Thanksgiving turkey before?
1: Heck no, never. <laughs> Not once. Okay. And because he was home and medically retired, my mom was kind of doing care duty for him and working full time. So I uh, think she just thought, hey, if somebody's going to take this off my plate, sure, more power to him, you know?
0: What Go did the it. recipe entail? Or his his version of the recipe as he told the family.
1: His version, yes, exactly. His version of the recipe entailed him putting some cheesecloth over the top of the turkey, and then having to baste it very frequently over the. in the cheesecloth was supposed to hold the moisture in.
0: The cheesecloth would go on the turkey me. as it went in the
1: oven. It was on top of the turkey in mm. the oven. And we should yep.
0: specify cheesecloth. How how can we best describe it for listeners? It is a uh, very it's, thin, but porous. It's like gauze. It's like gauze. It's like gauze. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's like gauze, only in a big sheet.
0: Okay, so your dad put a gauze-covered turkey. In the, in the oven and prayed for the best. Correct.
1: Then he kept check We were supposed to eat it about 2 or 2:30. 2 mhm. And because he kept having to base his turkey, I don't think the oven ever got really hot because oh, he, he kept was opening, opening the it every door. Half an hour. Right. And so, you know, this turkey looked like something that was just sitting out in the sun for a while. It wasn't ever <laughs> getting brown. It,
0: he was basting on top of the
1: cheesecloth. On top of the cheesecloth. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And so, this thing was looking it looked awful what did it look like finally at about it it was just kind of pasty and white and never was getting brown and never was getting done and you know it had this gross cloth over the (laughs) top of it 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 was you know wet and was it raw it looked the turkey did not look done that's Uh for sure
0: there's a word that you used in the email you sent to us to describe this turkey you called it a mummy turkey
1: Correct. So that's that's become the joke in our house. Is it? It was the gauze turkey, and then it became the mummy turkey. It looked like a some sort of mummified turkey laying in the oven. Mm. Um, so finally, at about five o'clock, and remember we're supposed to eat at two. My mom said, "I am taking over the turkey now," and we finally got to eat about six thirty ish. So, so it four it and a half late, hours late. Four and a half hours late, and you know, I was. We were just joking about it recently. I can call my mom at any time and say, are you making a mummy turkey? And she will laugh and laugh because it became such a joke in our house. You know, And my dad was very good-natured about it. Okay. He, he knew that he was not allowed to make turkeys anymore yeah. after that.
0: Has this changed the way that you think about Thanksgiving? I mean, so like even hearing you talk about your dad and him screwing up that turkey, I get where the impetus comes from. There's a lot of turkey pressure. No
1: there is a lot of turkey. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. For sure there is. And two things for me. I I cook the turkey in our house. Okay. And I cook it on wood pellets outside. Oh. Um so I, you know, it's kind of got a smoky thing going on, but I always do a test turkey first so we can have a little a little pre-Thanksgiving and make sure that I've got my recipe right. You our, do two turkeys? So we do two turkeys. Wow. Yeah, I usually do one like early in November and then I do one on Thanksgiving day. But we're super low-key about it. We don't have a crazy ton of sides, just simple sides. It's just more about hanging out with your family and having a good time together. It's not really about, you know, everything has to be exactly perfect.
0: While you were talking, I Googled a cheesecloth turkey recipe, and I'm seeing photos of someone who did it.
1: Uh-huh. That is scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to know that it's actually a real recipe. Because Sam, I will tell you, we never really knew <laughs> if it was if it was his recipe was accurate or if it was if he really saw it or what. So, um, I'm glad to know that there is really a recipe out there in the world like that.
0: Oh yeah, it's real and it's creepy.
1: I would tell you, I can attest to that. It was very creepy.
0: Oh my goodness, is your dad still living?
1: No, he's not. He uh, passed away a few years after that episode happened, so...
0: Okay. I hope he is getting all of the cheesecloth turkey he could ever want up in heaven.
1: Well, (laughs) I'm sure he is. (laughs) And if nothing else, he's laughing about us laughing about it, for sure.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like Chris Seely said, things don't have to be perfect for Thanksgiving or for any holiday that involves food. It is about something more, you know, the heart and stuff. Uh, And this is what I was talking about with a friend of the show, Dan Pashman. Dan is the host of the Sporkful podcast, a podcast all about food and what it says about us. I've talked Thanksgiving with Dan before, but this year, Dan and I were taking an anti-turkey stance. It's not
2: normal for (laughs) for a person with a food podcast or a food blog or a food magazine or a food TV show to ignore Thanksgiving. It's, it's like it's the Super Bowl Exactly. Of food. It's, it's our Super Bowl. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I just, I came to realize that we're all stuck in this vicious, sometimes kind of destructive cycle. And when I say all of us, I mean there's those of us in food media uh-huh. who are creating all this Thanksgiving stuff. Uh-huh. And then there's folks at home who are hosting or cooking yeah. Thanksgiving. And I don't think it's working for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> what is not working? So what, here's what happens. In the summertime, the food media people start working on their Thanksgiving specials. huh. You know, and, and, I mean, when you see those big recipe spreads in the New York Times or the yeah. LA Times or yeah. Bon Appetit, the pictures of those turkeys were taken in June. <laughs> That's how long
0: it's yes. been in the works. Yes, there's a buildup.
2: So, and, and I can tell you that the people who are in charge of making those features mm-hmm. hate it. Why? Because they have to do
0: something new every year. And let me tell you what I found out as someone who has tried a few times a cook Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. Turkey's crappy. (laughs) It's not good meat. It's hard to be inventive with it. And the things that you have to do just to make the food bearable to chew are kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. I gotta soak this bird in salt water for yeah. a day and a half just to make it not tough as rubber. I know, and like, and then when you, when I,
2: I used to, I brine turkeys, like yeah. you said, and, and like, then you think about like, I'm brining it in like a five gallon bucket from
0: Home Depot, <laughs> yes. like this is not appetizing. Yes, yes. <laughs> so there is this unsustainable contradiction and dichotomy in Thanksgiving being an, a holiday full of food tradition. Yes. But also the Thanksgiving industrial complex trying to continually give you something new to aspire to.
2: Right. And it, and, and a lot, as with a lot of things that are framed as being aspirational, they end up just making a lot of us feel bad because we're not <laughs> able to attain that level of yeah. whatever. And so the food media is creating all this stuff. We hate making it because mm-hmm. we don't want to have to think of a new way to cook a turkey. And mm-hmm. then people receive the, this content and it just makes them feel bad, yeah. uh, either about what they were doing before that they can't measure up. and But yet, you know we, we all kind of can't resist trying to know what's the next hot new thing. Yes. So it creates this cycle. Yes. I'm trying to break the cycle.
0: How long have you been personally breaking the cycle in your life? This is two
2: years since the last time we did a Thanksgiving special on the
0: Sporkful. Are you still cooking Thanksgiving dinner?
2: I still cook Thanksgiving dinner, but I have actually, I've gotten less and less ambitious as as the years have gone on.
0: (laughs) Give me an example of you being less ambitious when it comes to Thanksgiving dinner.
2: I mean, I'm almost at the point where I will just like, all I do is salt the turkey and then I roast it. There you go. All right, and like, it's fine, and it is totally fine. And you know what? When I'm in a good mood and not stressed, uh-huh. that is what makes the holiday fun. Yeah, and um, I let other people bring things, and I make a turkey, I make stuffing, I make mashed potatoes, I make Brussels sprouts. Yeah, my mom
0: and my mother-in-law have things that they bring, and it all works out great. Yeah. As you pare down your ambitions when it comes to Thanksgiving dinner, did you feel yourself missing some of that nostalgia or aspirational Americanness? No, (laughs) (laughs) because really what the
2: aspiration is, is that the family is coming together. You know, what I had gotten in my head, Sam, and what got me all in a tizzy in previous Thanksgivings was, and I have young kids, I have a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old, Becky and Emily, and I remember my Thanksgivings growing up, Uh and you get a lot of nostalgia tied up with your own, however your family celebrates holidays. Uh And I'm like, these are the memories. I'm making their memories right yeah. now. Like, and so I, I felt a lot of pressure to make it just right for them. Because like when, you know, when they grow up and go out into the world, these are the years they're going to really remember. Yes. Yes. But what I came to realize is that like, but it's not really the turkey. Mm-hmm. Like, what they're going to remember is that we were all together. and if Hanging I, out for and, a whole day. Right. And if I'm, you know, lying in the corner of the kitchen in a fetal position having a breakdown because the I couldn't figure out, you know, how, how much turmeric to use yeah. on my newfangled to me
0: uh-huh. recipe, uh, then, like, that's not a good
2: memory for my kids. Exactly. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. There's another thing that I'm going to bring up, and I might get hate mail as soon as I say it. But I also find that a lot of the foods that we associate with the idea of Thanksgiving food is bad food. Turkey's a bad bird. I mean, I'm— You know, mashed potatoes are bland. Green bean casserole is, ugh, I don't know. Like, uh, it's not even—the stuff that we're forced to work with isn't even— if the Thanksgiving Food Industrial Complex people, the Bon Appetit, the New York Times cooking, if all of those folks could start from scratch and pick good food for Thanksgiving, they wouldn't pick what we have now, I almost feel like. Right. Mashed potatoes and sweet potatoes, you have to doctor them up because otherwise they're bland starches. I mean, I think if
2: you put enough butter on yeah, mashed potatoes, they're yeah. pretty good. I, but I love my sweet potatoes with salted butter and lime get out of my studio
0: lime <laughs> i'm crazy. telling you okay but also like a lot of this thanksgiving food signaling comes from the top of the food industry like they have made us think that we still should be cooking turkey when it's a bad bird to cook like it's it's weird like you say that folks inside the thanksgiving industrial complex hate it all but they're the ones that keep pushing it to us year after year what if we were to start a movement to get rid of turkey at thanksgiving listen sign me up the only turkey that works and this is my secret when I have to do Thanksgiving dinner at home where I'm from in San Antonio, Texas when it's my year to do food I just pick up food the day before from the places I love and I found that the best turkey is a barbecue smoked turkey Mm. from a South Texas barbecue chain called Rudy's Barbecue it is uh, their tagline is the worst barbecue in Texas (laughs) and everyone is at a gas station (laughs) it's like a gas station in Rudy's Barbecue that's awesome but their smoked turkey is smoked long and slow and it's just tender that's the only way turkey works for me that sounds really good that's the only <gasps> way it works
2: I've also considered trying to start a movement for people to braised their turkey which would oh. mean like like cooking it if you were to cook it covered mm-hmm. uh, with liquid and then it kind of sort of steams mm-hmm. and that can get the meat pretty soft and tender also I like that. but but again like it, I it ain't exactly a roast pork shoulder
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly so Dan in the spirit of A Thanksgiving special that is not quite anti-Thanksgiving. We're going to go now to a chef conversation with one of the hottest chefs of the moment. But she's just talking about food. She's not talking about Thanksgiving food. I'm talking about celebrity chef, Netflix star, Samin Nosrat. Love Samin. Right. So she had a big show and a big book over the last year or so called Salt, Fat, acid heat and she does this wonderful thing where she breaks down food and how to cook it in a way that feels entirely accessible and simple and inclusive we'll hear that after the break all right dan so thank you for your contribution my pleasure sam
1: support for this podcast comes from the john s and james l knight foundation helping npr advance journalistic excellence in the digital age
3: on our brand new
0: season of the Storycore podcast from NPR, you'll hear challenging conversations between friends, family members, and sometimes people who could have easily been enemies as they
2: bridge divides and build connections where you'd least expect it. Episodes are available every Tuesday.
0: We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. For the rest of the show today, we are going to revisit a chat about food. A chat that warms my heart, but it involves zero discussion of turkey, I promise. This chat is with one of the biggest names in the food industry right now, Samin Nosrat. A lot of you probably caught her Netflix series last year, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. She also wrote a James Beard award-winning and best-selling book of the same name. Samin told me the stories behind that book and the show... In a kitchen, but not mine, because mine's filthy all the time. A co-worker's kitchen.
1: Hello! Hi! Welcome Hi.
0: to Not My House! <laughs> <laughs> Samin and I hung out in the kitchen of my NPR colleague and dear friend Angie. Angie and her family have a real... Grown-up kitchen. We'll
3: take Is that. this a shoes-off house? <laughs> Not at all. No. Okay. That's Hi. Angie.
0: Hi. Anywho, fun backstory to this: on the day we met, Samin was rushing from one place to the other. We had been messaging back and forth about what to actually cook together, and then she was like, "It's cool. I'll pick up the stuff." I'm going to make a run to Trader Joe's.
3: This is why a person should not go to Trader Joe's when they're hungry and on the phone and behind schedule.
0: On that TJ's run, she also got herself some snacks to eat before we cooked. Okay, these are Trader Joe's.
3: They're the green cheese and chili tamales. They're okay. like, and they're I buy them, there's two in a package. I buy like three packages at a time and leave them in my office freezer at work so that like, Every anytime I'm like there, at, yeah. You know, 6 p.m. and I'm like, what you am I gonna it? eat? Yeah, they're so good.
0: <laughs> I love that a celebrity chef is giving me permission to eat frozen Trader Joe's food. I think
3: as a, I mean, you're allowed to eat whatever you want.
0: I know, but, yeah. but but like to feel good about it. And oh, I don't yeah. feel guilty about I it. I mean, anymore. those
3: ones are really delicious. Yeah.
0: The yeah. only yeah. thing like more amazing amazing awesome food than knowing that a big deal, famous, food famous food chef food. like Samin loves Trader Joe's yeah. tamales, There's is that she also asked me what I wanted from that TJ's run. You got my favorite. Dark chocolate, almonds, Those sea are really salt, good. and turbinado sugar. Oh my god! They have good
3: texture. They really do. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: This is what has made Samin and her show and her book so popular. She can walk seamlessly between the world of ordinary everyday food, while also traveling all over the place, cooking and eating with some of the biggest names in the biz. Samin writes a food column in the New York Times Magazine. She trained under the renowned chef Alice Waters. She has worked with food writer Michael Pollan. But on screen and in person, she is as accessible and relatable and down to earth as your favorite Trader Joe's comfort food. <laughs> like, did I mention?
3: You know, I definitely feel really...
0: She microwaved the tamales. They're frozen tamales.
3: <gasps> yes! Tamale time!
0: <laughs> After Samin got to eat a little bit... That's good.
3: It is so good. That's good.
0: We sat down the to talk. They're really yummy. Samin is someone still adjusting to celebrity. my God. When we met, she had just gotten off a flight from Berkeley, where she lives. She went straight to the store herself to get some cookware to use at her Airbnb before she met up with me. And then after our chat, she had to go to a book signing. Uh, And then on top of all that, a reporter from The Guardian was about to profile her. It was a lot. Although you are still like entourage free. You went to LAX by yourself. You got to rental car by yourself. You rode around and got a pot and pan at TJ Maxx by yourself. Oh, I got three.
3: I got so many things at TJ Maxx. What did you get at TJ Maxx? (laughs) I got three pots for making Persian rice. Mm -hmm. Two baking sheets. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of Tupperwares. Oh, and a big strainer. At TJ Maxx. Oh, yeah. Home goods. that one on Sepulveda. It's a good one. I think this is good (laughs) to hear, though,
0: because, like, I want to do better in my life by food, mm-hmm. and I want to not, like, break my budget. Yeah, you don't
3: have to go to the fancy. There's, like, so many tricks. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Let we'll have a few of those tricks right for you on. a bit later, but yeah, first we should so explain, fine. for those of you who do not know fine. yet, uh, what Samin means when she uses the phrase, salt, fat, acid, heat. It's the name of her book and her show, and it is basically her philosophy on food. Samin breaks all food down into those four categories, salt, fat, acid, heat. And she says once you understand those categories and how they all work together, you don't even need recipes anymore. You'll just know how to make food taste good.
3: I mean, my dream was for this book to have no recipes but no publisher was gonna buy that. Yes,
0: yes. <laughs> Although like, you do yeah. approach the recipe differently. And so what we're gonna cook today later is this dish in your book called Conveyor Belt Chicken. Mm-hmm. And part of why I picked it is because as you know, on this like page, an essay, yeah. it's an essay. It's not a list with measurements and numbers. Yeah. And you tell the story of like how you made this dish and you kind of like made it in a pinch and just improvised and figured it out. Then your friend improvised and figured something, this thing out, and all of a sudden you have this dish. And so I'm reading the essay, waiting for like the ingredients list. And I was like, oh, it's in there, <laughs> that's it.
3: <laughs> totally. That's cool. Yeah, there couldn't I couldn't do a ton of those, but this was one where there's only two, like. I guess if you count oil, there's three ingredients, oil, salt, and chicken. Yeah, so Yeah, three great ingredients. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think I wanted to empower people in different ways with different um, formats of recipes to start to be able to think about how the like, world of cooking is so much smaller than you think.
0: That idea is the heart of
3: salt, fat, acid, and heat. Just four basic elements can make or break a dish.
0: So, Samin is
3: using her platform
0: to talk about good food and making good food accessible, but she's also discussing food and race and gender and how the food world can diversify itself and elevate women of color. Samin is a daughter of immigrants from Iran, and she wanted a bunch of female chefs in her show. So she meets female chefs all over the world, like in this scene with the renowned pasta chef from Tuscany.
3: It's really just flour and eggs to make handmade pasta, right? Yes. And the eggs give the richness, the incredible fat. And you used more eggs than I had ever seen. This is the reason why in Italy we call this pasta al uovo. Pasta all'uovo, yes. That flour and eggs. <laughs> and a little, little water in case... To you help need bring it.
0: it together. Yes. The show, y'all, it is just beautiful to watch. It is cinematically shot, kind of in the vein of another Netflix food series, Chef's Table. You'll see Samin in these like sweeping drone shots of an Italian olive orchard, or sampling fruit in this sunny citrus market in Mexico, or hanging out on this chilly fishing dock in Japan, eating fresh caught sushi.
1: Mm.
0: It's just beautiful.
3: It's so good. It's just so clean. It's really like Japanese cooks have figured out how to use every part of the ocean.
0: So much of your world before the show was probably one thing. And then like the show maybe changed a lot of things for you or did it? Because like what I... What do you mean like my world? What do you mean? You get noticed now more. Oh,
3: that part. My life. My dear. Yeah. Life. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: I mean, because like, I mean, like just like the way that I found you, I... I watch a lot of food stuff because I like food and I'm lazy, I don't want to cook, but I want to watch people make it. And for whatever reason, I was at home, I think it was the weekend it came out, mm-hmm. the show came out. And Fridays are my long days. Do that. Are you drinking, you're a kombucha fan too? Yeah, I had some this morning.
3: Also, I really love this weird flavor called Watermelon Wonder, but it doesn't taste like Watermelon or Wonder. It tastes like cherries (laughs) because there's cherry juice in it.
0: No, I like the lemon ginger kombucha. Also, last week in the Whole Foods, I found out that they serve like high alcohol kombucha.
3: Like on tap? Like that you could just, or the ones with the black, the black ones or the alky ones.
0: Yes. 7% alcohol. Yeah, yeah. I'm drinking a beer, but it's good for my stomach. I love it so much. Anyways, oh my god, I digressed. Okay, sorry. No, it's fine. I love this. I, I, I love kombucha. I love pity it.
3: be to the poor person who must edit this? Yeah,
0: Brent's a trooper.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Danny, I always feel really bad for. Gotta have it done by that. tomorrow.
0: <laughs> my whole thing is like, our job is to give them as much good content as we it's can, true. It's and true. then they'll figure it out. <laughs> Ah! and this is good content it's true Brent it's good content
3: <laughs> Brent I'm sorry <laughs>
0: <laughs> so when I finally not finally first weekend it's out I went Fridays I literally work 12 hours I get home all I want to do is like sit on that couch and like turn on someone to talk to me and I've been hearing the bus or so I turn it on and like when I watch Netflix it's A two screen thing. Like I'm watching Netflix and I'm on the phone and I'm doing whatever, but I don't know what it was. One or two shots in, you had me hooked. And then 15 minutes in, I was texting Brent, my friend (laughs) and producer. And I was like, we got to do this. Then I tweeted at you (laughs) and I was like, hey, your show. And I was just like, I have to, I have to talk to, I have to talk to her. I don't know what it's about. Something about the show. I've never seen a cooking show like it and when I thought more about it one your nature is very warm and open and inviting but two this show is cinematic yes the way it's shot yes there's these like pan shots where you're going across the countryside and getting like a like views of like farms and like when you walk into the butcher and it's just the meat hanging and it's just be- it's beautifully mm,
3: it's very there's beautiful. There's cinematography
0: going on. I don't know. What am I what am I trying to say here? Something's it's up cinematic. with it. It's
3: cinematic. It's gorgeous and we wanted that very very much. And a lot of that credit goes to the director Caroline Sue and to our incredible director of photography Luke Mcubrey who right. just really, I mean, beyond my wildest dreams made such a beautiful show. Yeah. yeah. Did
0: you ex- did you is that I knew I idea? wanted... You knew you wanted that. Uh, Why I did mean, you want that? I won't that?
3: say that it was my idea. But you wanted I you knew like I that? wanted... I love beautiful things. Um, yeah. I care a lot about making beautiful things accessible for everyone. Yeah. And I think a lot of the credit to, to the way that it looks, at least as far as my imagination and what I could imagine that it could look like, goes to Chef's Table, which I think paved a road for... Me to understand what a food show could look like. Yeah. Because before that, I never really saw anything so similar. And I think
0: cooking show is just like, okay, you're in the kitchen. You're in a studio. <laughs>
3: exactly, with like studio lighting. Yeah. And I mean, there's value to that, absolutely. I mean, Julia Child had in a lot of ways like the lowest production value of all time and yet we learned so 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 much from her and actually in doing research for the show I watched a lot of old clips of hers and watching her and the fact that she could do entire scenes entire dishes in one take without stopping without a break is incredible she could talk for 14 sometimes over 20 minutes without stopping without making one mistake I mean my joke on camera or on on our crew was seven takes a mean <laughs>
0: <laughs> I want us to start getting ready to cook okay. this conveyor belt chicken yeah. but as we get ready tell me what's been the biggest change for you since the show I know we've talked about it a I think bit the
3: amount like the, the people recognize me everywhere I go all the time
0: yeah and what do they say that's the first thing you hear often most
3: you know <laughs> oh my god is it you <laughs>
0: <laughs> do you want to do more stuff on camera you're good at I it. I think,
3: yeah, I've, I really enjoy it. Okay. I really enjoy having a new medium for storytelling. Yeah, It's not my life goal to be a television star. Like, okay. I think as long as I have another idea that makes sense for me to do it, I would like to do it. But I think probably what it will be is that I do one more thing. Yeah, And then once I have some power, <laughs> then <laughs> then what I'm going to do is like open the door for other people behind me and pull up other... Because the interesting thing is seeing a big part of what people have been so excited about makes me a little bit sad, actually, like Mm. the number of think pieces and they're so overexcited to see somebody different, you know, on camera. And I'm like, you're really starved for this. We as a community are really starved Mm -hmm. for this. And I already, to some extent had the experience of feeling like the only Brown cookbook writer, you know, mm-hmm. not, not, not of all cookbooks, but certainly of like the general cookbooks that have now been accepted I can't the name canon. Another. And so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so usually when you're like not a white person, you write a book about your family's cook, you know, your yeah. heritage cooking. And yeah. so, which is not a bad thing, but then somehow your identity becomes the topic rather than your work. Mm-hmm. And so... I don't want to be the only one, and I don't. It's gonna get. Lo- it's already kind of lonely in certain ways, and it's definitely mm. gonna get lonelier. I mm. think. So I feel like it's my responsibility and also joy, <laughs> yeah, <and laughs> to like hurry up, along the others, the others behind me as fast as possible.
0: I want you to give me an example of that loneliness you speak of. Uh, what do you
3: mean? Um,
0: a moment hmm. when you. Oh, felt I mean, it? I have
3: a lot of loneliness. In my life. <laughs> I'm trying to think of. You know, um well, being the to a, a t- like tokenization, you know, being the only brown person on a panel, that happens a lot and I've I've learned now to insist otherwise and to insist that I won't participate unless you know, we diversify. And often and I, like I have at the ready list of names cuz yeah. a lot of times the excuse is like couldn't find oh anybody. couldn't find one. <laughs>
0: And you're like and,
3: uh, and yeah, I'm like, here. Let me unroll the scroll. <laughs> so you're like and so, me and another at least. Yeah, yeah, me and another at least. And it, the other could be anything. It does, It could be another woman. Could be yeah. another brown person. Could be a queer person. Could yeah. be a I don't even know, like some other thing, but just not like a typical straight white guy, you know. And so, or in the cookbook world, often it's a typical straight white female, like, mm-hmm. but. I think a lot of that means changing who's in power. So I'm really curious to figure out how do we diversify like publishing houses, you know? Yeah. Because in all of the publishing houses that I've ever visited, which in, is close to two dozen like different kind of meetings that I've had with various editors and yeah. publishers over the years, I have only ever met one editor who's not white
0: so and they're and they're the ones that give the green light and this is why i always say there's not a pipeline problem there's a green lighting
3: yeah totally so that's part of it and then also now you know and i cannot say enough good stuff about netflix like the documentary studio at netflix is the most amazing place that i have ever entered (laughs) like i feel so well on of probably 20 people, you know, who've worked in different roles on my on my show. Three were white men, none were straight, <laughs> and everybody else was a woman and probably 80% of those women are not white. Yeah. So, um what's that
0: like on to be in a It is team like heaven. That. Okay. It's heaven
3: It's heaven to be around people of, of all different backgrounds, yeah. of all different like stories in their mind, because then there's a way where when you are in a room, there's not one dominant narrative.
0: I love it. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. When we come back, the chicken hits the skillet, and later the story of how Samin got into cooking by stumbling into one of the best-reviewed restaurants in the country
1: support for NPR comes from Newman's own foundation working to nourish the common good by donating all profits from Newman's own food products to charitable organizations that seek to make the world a better place more information is available at newmans own foundation.org
0: hey y'all before we get back to the show I want to remind you one more time of how you can keep this show coming to you every week by supporting the work of your local NPR member station. To do that, go to donate.npr.org Sam, or just text the word Sam to the number 49648. We'll send you a text message with a link where you can find your local station and make your contribution. Message and data rates may apply. You can visit npr.org slash terms for privacy and text message terms. Okay, thank you. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. You're hearing a special encore version of my chat from last year with Samin Nosrat. Making some food together and talking all about how Samin got into cooking. But we talked about more than just food. We also talked about the ways in which we all associate food with certain notions of gender and power. You know, you it's in thinking about how... You say there's been think pieces written about just the fact that you're a brown woman doing a show like this. I was thinking about like food in my life and the people that I conceptualized food around. It's like when you grow up, when you're a kid, when you think of food, you think of women. You mm-hmm. think of your mother. Mm-hmm. You think of your fam- like the matriarchs of the family in charge of the food. That's that's the way it was for me at least, right? And I feel like for most people, but something happens when you hit adulthood where immediately. Not immediately, but over time, you begin to associate food, or at least like the ideal of food, and you know, going out to restaurant food with men. The oh yeah, chefs I have a lot men. to say about this. <laughs> what is, what causes that switch?
3: Power and Why? money. Okay, <laughs> okay. So like, um I mean, I always I always have say like if I were given a opportunity to return to graduate school, I would. Right, I'm, would, I'm pretty sure you yeah. have the opportunity. at this <laughs> yeah, point. It, it might, if, I, if that were a thing for me, I yeah. would do I would do my work on gender in the kitchen. And again, like I'm going to get some facts wrong here, but the general trajectory of human kind mm. <laughs> has been for you know about ten thousand years ago is when we be, we switched from being like hunter gatherers to agriculture as mm-hmm. our main source of food, where. Men, you know, bring home the meat and women cook it for the family. Yes. So like if your job, you know, to sustain your family was to, I don't know, stretch a pig for as many months as Mm -hmm. you could, you found different ways to preserve it. You found ways to take like the grisly parts and make them delicious and something your kids want to eat. You learn to use all the stems of chard. And and women led that. And women did that because that was the the thing, right? So that's what we now call peasant cooking or Mm. grandma cooking, Mm. which gets like, Elevated and like often served in a fancy restaurant with like some pasta mm-hmm. <laughs> for $45 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, but then, approximately 300 years ago, 250 years ago, was when restaurants became a thing. And huh. suddenly now there was money and attention and power a- attached to this job that became a profession.
0: Well, and the folks that could open restaurants were the folks that had power, which was probably men. men.
3: Right. So At that time, kitchens became a place for men, you know, Hmm. and even traditional French cuisine, which is accepted by many people as the (laughs) standard. I love that (laughs) I right there. (laughs) I have to think of how to say it. But like, uh, you know. Um, is, you know, traditional French kitchens are called brigades, brigades, like, and the organization of chefs, sous chef is modeled after the military. Really? So the idea of how a kitchen is run is very militaristic and that's in order to create order and organization. Yeah. But it's against but the it's
0: evolutionary trajectory of food, thing. yeah. And
3: of course, like this space was not really welcoming to women and so an entire profession was born where men got the attention men got the money men got the stuff and then that sort of has just continued on and on and on what
0: does it take to change that
3: i don't know right now i'm feeling very pessimistic so i feel like the whole thing has to be burned down what
0: makes you feel pessimistic
3: i mean our uh, well i live in the bay area and our community has definitely been affected by like there's just been a lot of um women speaking up about abuse and harassment that they have um or, or that the like instinct isn't to be interested in hearing the stories of the people who have been victimized mm-hmm. at all, like, mm-hmm. and so I, I, that's a big part of my my pessimism is just that, which is just one part of this. Also, like this way that for example just three crops in this country are subsidized by the government for farmers while abandoning like all the actual vegetables which corn, thing? wheat and soy. And so um, I just feel like right now I'm feeling very and then there's climate change like yeah. <laughs> you know like I'm just feeling I'm just in a particularly pessimistic mode at this moment. And so sometimes when I'm feeling the weight of all of that, I feel like what I the only thing I can do is what I can do, which is like get people excited to cook
0: it's interesting to hear you talk about being pessimistic about the state of your world and the food world right now because the only way that i've known you since i've been consuming your work has been
3: full of joy s- full of joy <laughs> yeah i am full of joy too um it's but i'm more than just you know and that's a whole this goes back to your last question about like how has my life changed yeah you know, people watch the show and they feel like they know me, which mm. is wonderful and speaks to like how well they're you receiving. did your job well. Yeah, and yeah. I did my job well, but also that's just one part of me. And so mm. I'm also like a highly neurotic person who's <laughs> done my homework for a really long time and, and in general, like puts a lot of thought into what I put out in the world.
0: Yeah. On that note. Let's make some chickens. Make okay. some conveyor belt <laughs> chicken. I love it. <laughs> Okay, back in the kitchen with Samin, she brought her own knives.
3: <laughs> uh,
0: I love that sound. Anywho, we promised you a few cooking tricks in this conversation, here is one.
3: People think that the way to hold a knife is to hold the handle. Yes. Like put your, all four of your fingers around mm-hmm. the handle. Yeah. That is not the way to hold the knife. Okay. Because if you do that, you don't actually get the dexterity and, that you do it, and the control mm-hmm. than you would when you pinch the blade, which I know feels really weird and scary. Like, why yeah. would I touch the metal part? Yeah. But when you touch the metal part, all of the power is much more central to the, like, i mean, yes, exactly. And the first, probably three weeks of doing this feels very awkward, and then it becomes second nature. You just, you know, it's like, imagine holding a pencil toward the top. Why would you do that? You hold a pencil toward the bottom. Yeah. You know, you want to be closer to where you, you to want. To the tool itself. Yeah, to the tool itself. So. All right,
0: now um, we're gonna make Samin's so conveyor belt thing. chicken. And she secondly, calls it conveyor calls belt chicken because, in spite of the recipe hair being hair so hair simple, hair. a friend told her that it's so good, you'll want a conveyor belt to get that chicken into your mouth as quickly as possible. Okay, first we gotta debone some skin-on chicken thighs.
3: Good job. Oh, I cut into the bone. No, you, you definitely didn't, don't worry. Okay. That knife's not strong enough.
0: <laughs> thighs, of course, then, are dark meat unlike the more popular chicken breast, which is white meat.
3: I always will choose chicken leg over chicken breast and- um,
0: Put it there. Yeah.
3: It's juicy. <laughs> it's juicy, juicy, totally. And more breast, flavorful. Breast and is has dry. Fat. It's more fatty and Thank fat you. is flavor.
0: Fat is flavor. Okay.
3: That chicken. So a salt. So uh, I take a generous pinch, mm-hmm. and then I'm not, no, what I'm not doing mm-hmm. is this my like thumb forefinger pinch. Oh. That's really what I consider to be like specialized salting, mm-hmm. like individual precision salting. Mm-hmm. But we have, you even have we like a, a whole lot. cutting board of yes. chicken assault. So you're going to do what I call the, the wrist wag. Okay. <laughs> so I'm just sort of letting the salt, I'm, wi- I'm not even moving my fingers. Yeah. I'm, it's just, I'm Your wagging wrist my wrist. Yeah. yeah. And it's just sort of flinging, flinging out. There you go. There
0: you go. So as the salt settles on our chicken, it's time for heat, which brings us to another cooking trick. Make sure your pan is hot enough.
3: This is how I like to test a pan to see if it's hot enough. I just sort of splash a couple drops of water in there. Mm -hmm. Almost any time I'm going to put anything into a pan, and certainly any time I'm going to put meat into a pan, I want the pan to be hot before I add the, the oil and before I, and the oil to be hot before I add the food. Yeah. If the pan is already hot, then the oil will heat up immediately. Mm-hmm. So, the, and part of the reason, especially with skin on chicken, is that skin will stick to a cold pan. So we're just going to check. All right, we're getting there. One more time.
0: Then the key to this whole recipe is cooking the chicken skin side down.
3: That's the most fulfilling sounds. It's so good. It means you're doing it right. Yeah. But here's the twist. And then then
0: you put another heavy cast iron pan on top of the chicken.
3: So do you want to stick that thing on top that get your, your foil pan and just so lay it right on top? second
0: cast iron skillet wrapped in foil is going to go on top of the first cast iron skillet to mash the chicken down. Yep.
3: So what happens with meat and skin, things with skin and protein, Is that that protein will initially stick to the pan, Mm -hmm. but then once it sort of cooks partway and starts to harden, it'll peel off. I
0: heard that change.
3: (laughs) It's gonna start happening more. But you know, no oven, no stove burner is completely even unless you're using like one of those high-tech induction burners. Like Mm -hmm. the so on this one, I don't know. That window's open. So maybe there's a breeze that we can't feel coming in and pushing heat this way. Or maybe this pan isn't fully centered on this burner. So things are not gonna cook evenly. So we have to move them around. That's the solution.
0: The point of all this is to get the fat in that skin rendered down perfectly. Samin says you can actually hear when that happens.
3: So the sound of the sizzle is completely different. Like the quality is totally, because now it's just fat. There's no water left. Yeah. And that's just oil.
0: In Samin's book, you serve this chicken with a uh, simple herb salsa, but we had to make moves. Time was running short, so we let Trader Joe's, once more, save the day.
3: We could just put some of the corn salsa? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs>
0: Trader Joe's corn salsa works just fine as well. Then we threw a few tortillas in the pan to cook them in that chicken fat for a little bit.
3: It's going to take a minute to fry. Oh, look, it's puffing up. puffing up. up. Ah!
0: <laughs> I'm into it. And then it's taco time. Oh, my God. Oh good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yum. Mm-hmm. The fried
3: fruit is good. Mm-hmm.
0: Post-tacos, I asked Samin to tell me the story of how she got her first job in a restaurant. It is a story with lessons about work and success and kindness, and it began with one meal. Samin was in college in the Bay Area at the time. She was studying English literature. She was not training to be a cook at all. Uh, but she was dating this guy.
3: Yeah, so he was from the Bay Area. Okay, And so a lot of what we did was go to his childhood favorite pizzeria or ice cream place or just all of the places he loved. And he had always wanted to eat at Chez Panisse, which is a restaurant in Berkeley that is an institution. It was opened in 1971 by Alice Waters, who's really in a lot of ways the progenitor of the farm to table movement in mm-hmm. this country. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't know any of that. I just yeah. knew that it sounded expensive Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that my family had never paid, you know, a hundred dollars a person for dinner before. Mm-hmm. So it seemed out of the question for me, but he really wanted to do it. So we saved up, money for seven months. We had like a shoebox that we saved money in and we saved $220 and we went to eat there. And I was 19. I think he was 20. And so
0: this was 20 years ago. Yeah. And
3: we were sitting in the downstairs dining room. I was wearing a denim skirt. He was wearing uh, like, and I had a black tank top. I don't remember what he wore. And, but we were definitely not regulars you know like and i'm sure everyone who worked there could tell like we stood out as very young inexperienced diners Mm -hmm. and um to me what was really incredible about it wasn't so much like that the food was so great because my mom is a really good cook and i grew up eating really delicious food so it wasn't that this was the best meal i had ever had i had just never been in a restaurant where i felt so attended to Mm -hmm. and cared for and so that's part of what you pay for Totally, but like I just had never, I just yeah. did not, I didn't understand any yeah, of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Everything about it seemed so special, and the lights are like just warm enough, and there's these incredible flower arrangements, and it feels really personal, mm-hmm. and that felt really special. And the dessert was chocolate souffle. Yes. Which I had never had before, and this was like so, a fancy
0: souffle because like there had to be steps done to it, right?
3: Yeah. So when they brought it up to, over to us, yeah. I wonder why she thought. Should <laughs> you? It occurred to the server that maybe I had never had souffle before, so she said, "Have you? Would you like me to show you how to eat this?" And mm-hmm. I said, "Yeah." So she said, "You poke a hole in it with your spoon, and then you pour the sauce in, and that way every bite has sauce." It was like a raspberry which sauce,
0: which I didn't know was a thing until I read your story. Yeah, I
3: didn't I, didn't, I didn't know, know but I guess yeah. it's like it must so, be like the classic French yeah. way. Of doing. And so um, I don't think I've ever done it again since, honestly. I don't eat that many souffles. uh, And so I took a bite and she said, how is it? And I said, oh, it's really good. But you know what would make it even better? Is a glass of cold milk because it was like this warm chocolatey yeah. thing you yeah. want cold milk like yeah. it seems pretty natural yeah.
0: but that's a shape and, and she's
3: use. yeah totally yeah. she totally was like what <laughs> 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 and so she kind of laughed and she went and brought me a glass of milk and then she also brought us each a glass of dessert wine to teach us like the refined accompaniment yeah and much later like when i lived in italy a few years later i realized that milk is considered, like to drink milk after 10 a.m. is a faux pas. Like it's mm. something that babies do, you know? Like, yeah. like uh, if you're an adult, like, you know, um, gourmand, you would never drink milk after 10 a.m. So when yeah. Americans travel to France or Italy and order like a cappuccino or a cafe mm-hmm. latte at 4 p.m., like they're like drawing attention to themselves as Americans. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. You do, And so anyway, so we had this really special meal and I was so moved... And I always worked through college. I had a work-study job just like filing papers mm-hmm. before that. So I was like, maybe I can work here. And we had other friends who were bussers there. So I wrote a letter asking for a job bussing tables. Mm. And when I brought it to the restaurant, they said, oh, you have to bring that to the floor manager. Mm-hmm. So I, she, they led me to her office. Mm-hmm. And when she opened the door, it was the souffle lady. That had gave me the milk. Yeah, totally. So she kind of remembered me and I remembered her. And I'd written this like very earnest letter saying how moving this dinner had been. And could I please work there? And I'd never worked in a restaurant before, but I would try my hardest. And so she hired, she was like, can you start tomorrow? Which now I understand to be like desperate restaurant manager speak of like, we, we need somebody. somebody, can you start tomorrow? Yeah. But at the time it felt like the stars had aligned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I started busing tables the next day and I was an English major. I had never thought about restaurants or food or cooking or anything. And I felt at home in that.
0: What I like about that story, that floor manager giving you that cup of milk with the dessert line and saying, I'm going to show you both. Mm -hmm. It feels like that is a lot of your approach. Like, I'm going to meet you where you are, but I'm going to show you both both of these things. Totally. Yes.
3: Yeah, and I feel, well, I just feel like shame is not a good teaching tool. Mm. Like, I just don't feel like, telling people that they're not buying the right thing Mm -hmm. or that they don't like the right thing is going to win anyone over and make them want to listen to me. Mm -hmm. Also, you know what it is, is like for (laughs) salt, fat, and acid Mm -hmm. make food taste good. They Mm -hmm. make food taste good for humans. And we as humans have evolved to crave those things. Our bodies can't make salt. Mm -hmm. They can't make certain kinds of fat. So we crave eating them. You know, and that fat is what powers us.
0: And it completes us.
3: Totally. And acid is what brings contrast. You know, acid makes our mouths water. So when we say something's mouthwatering, mm-hmm. it's because it's acidic. And huh. so you already know so much of what I am teaching. People already know that even if they don't care about cooking mm-hmm. and they don't want to care about cooking. Mm-hmm. And the example I always use is when you go to a Mexican place and you get a burrito and you take a bite and you're like, hmm, this is falling flat. How do I fix it? Lime. You're like, yeah, let me squeeze some lime. Let me put some sour cream. Let me put some guacamole. Let me put some salsa. What are those things? They're salt and fat and acid. And so that's what makes food taste good. That's what makes pizza taste good. And all the things that we sort of want to eat Mm -hmm. have those things in balance. And helping people realize that they already know that then maybe makes them a little bit more excited to put that information into use.
0: Altogether, Samin stayed with me at Angie's house for like two and a half hours. I have not had an interview lift me up this much and make me smile this much in a very, very long time. One more. Oh my goodness. You're the best. This was so awesome. Thank you. Before she left, Samin hugged everybody a few times. My colleague Angie, who lent us the kitchen, and her husband Daniel and her son Hadley, she even left us a few Trader Joe's goodies. Do you want your corn salsa? Nothing. Thanks again to Samin That was so much fun. Hope you enjoyed listening to that chat again. As much fun as I had making food with her. And, of course, thanks to the host of the Sporkful Podcast and beloved friend of this show, Dan Pashman. Get his podcast wherever you get your podcast. Also, thanks to Chris Seeley, our listener who called in from South Dakota with that story of the mummy turkey. And to all of you, thank you for listening. Thank you for being you. I hope you're enjoying your weekend with as much food and family as I am. That is a wrap for now. Happy, happy, happy holiday weekend. Back next week. Till then, talk soon.